0: Are you a Christian or an Arkansan? An Episcopalian or an American? Do you pledge allegiance to the flag or to God? I hope that the answer can be both. Usually, we hold on to the different aspects of our lives and our identity without experiencing a lot of conflict between them. One part of our lives informs the other. We live in both worlds without having to really work at it. Just as I am a priest and a husband, a father and a son, an uncle and a sibling, all of us experience dual identities that we hold together without even thinking about it until we have to think about it. Do I cheer for Arkansas or for Alabama? (laughs) Usually it's both. And usually that's not a problem. But once a year, I have to choose. Once a year, I have to decide where my true loyalties lie. I think that's why this gospel lesson is so hard. Because in a world in which we feel so naturally... That we belong to lots of different things, lots of different priorities. This story, confusing though it is, asks us to make a choice, and asks us to make a choice that I don't think any of us really wants to make. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. In the strange story that follows, Jesus describes this manager who cut backroom deals with all his master's debtors in order to curry favor with them so that when he lost his job, they would take care of him. And in the end, it gets stranger because the owner of the business actually praises the dishonest manager for acting so shrewdly. And if that weren't enough, by the end of Jesus' description of what happened, we hear Jesus saying to us, hey, go ahead and make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's all gone, they will welcome you into the eternal homes. What in the world is that supposed to mean? Well, before we pull the parable apart and try to make sense of it, remember where this parable fits in Luke's telling of the good news. The beginning of chapter 16, from which this text comes, follows right on the heels of three other parables that we know pretty well, two of which we heard in church last week. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the two lost sons, or the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling the religious leaders stories about lostness in order to explain to them why he's spending all this time with tax collectors and sinners because God is the one who seeks after the lost and welcomes back into the fold any who have gone astray. But when we get to chapter 16, The audience changes. Jesus is no longer talking just to those Pharisees and scribes who have a hard time understanding why Jesus is spending all that time with lost sheep. Instead, Jesus directs this strange parable to those sheep who have been found, to his disciples, to his followers, as if to remind us of what our life is supposed to look like when we belong to God. So what does our life look like if we are following Jesus? Like a dishonest manager? Someone who quickly and quietly tells his master's debtors to change their bills in order that we might benefit from that malfeasance down the road? Sort of? Maybe? I don't think any of us hears this parable and thinks that Jesus is trying to teach us how to run a business nor do I think we hear this parable and think that Jesus is trying to teach us that we should cheat in order to get ahead in life. That can't be right. So what is he trying to tell us? By inviting us to model our lives, at least in some ways, after that manager, Jesus is teaching us that we are supposed to approach our place in God's reign God's kingdom with the same focus and intensity and urgency that someone who belongs in this world would respond to the news that he was about to lose his job. But making sense of that, figuring out which parts of the manager's model to apply to our own lives requires us to do some mental gymnastics. It requires us to separate, at least mentally, the dishonest wealth which only belongs in this world, with the decision-making, the shrewdness of the manager, which Jesus wants us to see is as important in God's kingdom as it is in our affairs here and now. So look more closely at the story that Jesus tells us. The owner of a large agricultural business has heard that his chief manager is squandering his property. As soon as the manager learns that he must turn in the books and that he will lose his job, he hatches a plan. He tells one of his master's debtors to change his bill from 100 baths of oil to 50. And to another debtor, he says, change it from 100 cores of wheat and make it 80. Those weren't small amounts. Our translation uses looser language like jugs of oil and containers of wheat but the text means that what this manager was telling those debtors to do was to cancel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gallons of olive oil and bushels of wheat thousands tens of thousands of dollars worth of goods that the manager is telling them to pretend they don't owe anymore And because this manager was a legal agent of his master, the owner, the decisions he made, that backroom deal, they stuck. There's nothing the owner could do to get his money back. He might discover the deception, but the damage is done. Or in the eyes of the manager, the the foundation has been laid for what will follow him. But then things get strange. Part of what makes this parable so hard to understand is that Jesus seems to praise that manager's dishonesty. Plenty of scholars and preachers have tried to relieve us from the awkwardness of this story by explaining that maybe maybe the manager was simply foregoing his own commission in order that people would think highly of him, but wouldn't he rather have the money in his pocket than, than not in his pocket if he was about to lose his job? So that doesn't really make sense either. Others suggest that maybe he was canceling the interest on those debts. Back in that culture, charging interest was frowned upon, so maybe they argue the manager was actually helping his master look good in a way that the master wouldn't be able to refute in public. But the amounts that tens of thousands of dollars worth of good, it's too much for it to just be interest. So we're left instead with a story that seems to hold up this dishonesty as something we're supposed to emulate. But if we look even more closely at the text, we realize that Jesus isn't praising the man's dishonesty, but encouraging us to emulate his shrewdness. Just as the owner doesn't say, thank you for cheating me out of money, the owner says to the manager, wow, look who brought his brains to work today. I see what you did there. Why didn't you do that before you lost your job, right? The thing that is being held up for us to emulate, the shrewdness that we as followers of Jesus are supposed to hold on to is the ability to use the resources at hand to accomplish our goals. The question for us as followers of Jesus is whose goals are we trying to accomplish with the resources that we've been given? The children of this age, the people who live fully in this world, they know exactly how to get what they want with what they have. They know how to use money to manipulate a situation, and we know this. Just read the newspaper. We know this. People like that know how to be sure that when the bill comes due, they won't be left empty-handed. And the tax collectors and sinners that were following Jesus, they would have been very familiar with that way of life. They would, would have known well what it means to belong to this world and what it means to be good at it. Because belonging to this world comes so naturally to all of us. But the children of light, the ones who belong not to this age, but to the reign of God, we aren't very good at using the resources we have to attain what God envisions for the world around us. Because that doesn't come naturally. It's hard to use the currency of this age To achieve godly returns or results. Think about it, we don't normally associate shrewdness and sainthood. They don't seem to go together, but if you're using all your capacities to further God's will in the world, is there anything better than for us to be shrewd in that sense? Those of us who belong to God and to the age of God, the reign of God, we must like that manager, use anything and everything at our disposal to accomplish our true purpose. And because God has come to find us and taught us that we belong fully to God, then that means that the only purpose we can serve is God's purpose in our life. We cannot serve God and wealth we have to make a choice, and it's not an easy choice to make. Will we try to leave enough room amidst all of our financial priorities to fit God into our lives? Or will we trust that there will always be room for us and for our true flourishing when we belong to the reign that demands even everything we have? if we belong to the one who seeks us out and finds us, then all our riches and relationships, our positions and our power, everything we have in this life must be devoted to God as fully and cleverly as that manager used the resources at his disposal to be sure that the people around him would welcome him into their homes. But because we belong to God, we aren't waiting for someone to welcome us into a comfortable earthly life. As followers of Jesus, we've given up on that fantasy. We wait instead for God to welcome us into the eternal habitations, which means that in this life, that wealth, we're supposed to use it to make what sort of friends? The sort of friends who will welcome us into that eternal habitation. And who are they? Who are the ones waiting to welcome us into God's banquet if they aren't the poor and the destitute, the outcast, and the disenfranchised? Those are the ones waiting to welcome us into God's home and to welcome us to God's table. Those are the ones that must receive the wealth we have, and we've got to be creative and clever to find ways to use all that God has given us to meet the needs of those right in front of us. Why else would Jesus have said to us that when we throw a luncheon or a dinner, we're not supposed to invite anyone who is able to pay us back? Instead, we are to invite the poor the lame, the blind, the outcast, because they aren't able to pay us back in this life, but because they are waiting to welcome us into God's eternal home. Thanks be to God. Amen.